Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat learning session with TBA rabbinic intern Ben Siegel. Before we dive in, I just want to give a little bit of background on where we are. We just finished um, Sefer Shemot. We're done with the tabernacle for now. Um, at least we're done building it, but now we get to actually use it. And so Vayikra is going to have all sorts of different rituals that are done uh, in the in the Mishkan. And the step now, a lot of what the Torah is going to be covering now is what those rituals are, why they're done, when they're done, who they're done by, things like that. And um, so with that in mind, we're going to look at a particular um, korban, um, and not really the korban itself, but um, the reason for doing it. Uh, in this case, um, there's a bunch of different um, korbanot, a, a bunch of different um, sacrificial offerings that are done um, when someone sins, when someone has done something incorrect. Um, and um, these rituals act to mitigate that in a certain sense. Um, so with that in mind, um, I think for the sake of, um, of those on Zoom, I'll read the sources, but um, we also have a microphone to pass around um, as we're discussing. So the first one comes to, or the, the verse that I want to focus in on, um, mainly because of the commentary on it, um, a lot of these um, Corbinote are for similar reasons, but they're not exactly the same. It depends on who's doing them. Um, the one I want to focus in on um, comes to us from Vayikra chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Uh, if it is the community leadership of Israel that has erred and the matter escapes the notice of the congregation so that they do any of the things by which God's commandments ought not be done and they realize guilt, when the sins through which they incurred guilt becomes known, the congregation shall offer a bull of the herd as a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. So right off the bat, what stands out to you about this? They have to recognize it. Other thoughts? They have to take responsibility for it. And then it says that the, then that the congregation has to offer it. And I guess the question becomes, you know, is it who in the congregation? How does it work? It seems the more of it, it is... Just a little strange to me. It's strange to you in what sense? Well, it says if it's the community leadership, first you have to find out that, you know, it doesn't say that it's found out about it. It says if the community leadership makes an error, then, and no one, but no one knows about it, that, but when it's, when it's, when the sin, when it ultimately becomes known, then it's the congregation. It's not like the individual who does it, but it's the entire congregation doing it. If they found out who did the sin, then that, it would seem that that person would do the sin. Okay, great, great. So Sandra pointed out, um, just for those on Zoom, that um, it's the community leadership that is causing the rest of the community to engage in the sin. And because of that, that might be one of the reasons for why it's, um, it's not one single person who's then offering it up. It's the entire community. Um, before we look at a couple of these commentaries, I'm curious in general how you feel about the idea of a sin offering. It's certainly not something we do today. Um, 
for many reasons, but um, it's a little tangent that I want to go on because I'll tie it back in in the end. Yeah. Or from San Diego, I'm in LA. Um, yeah, but one of the things that, that um, interests me is this phrasing, um, you know, the sin to which they incurred guilt becomes known. Right, and so I think it's it's interesting just to reflect on this idea of community that you know it doesn't really say who's who who is knowing, and so it sort of creates this sort of communal accountability. Right, and I think that that is really interesting beyond the offering, just that you know if anyone notices, right, it's their responsibility to bring it to the community, and then the community reacts together. And I think I really like that idea. Right. Yeah. I think a sin offering would only make sense if it's a sin before God. The ben adam lemakom and not ben adam lechaverod, not between man or a person and another person, but between a person and God. Because I think if it were, if you if you actually committed a sin against another person, burning you know a sacrifice isn't going to achieve anything. It's not going to create the atonement, the the tshuva that you're otherwise looking right. for for the wrongdoing. Right, and I believe I'm not 100% certain, but I believe that is the context that this is happening in is. A sin bain adam lemakom and not bain adam lechavero, but that's a good point. Yeah, we're, we're going to get there. We're going to get to this idea of what happens if no one. Well, not quite what happens if no one knows, but this idea of once it becomes known. Um, but real quick before we go to that, does how does the idea feel about? A, just, just in general, yeah, this idea. The, the idea of offering up a sacrifice, meaning, thank you, Joseph, um, meaning offering up an animal sacrifice as as a means. I think or it was what not you necessarily were an animal, but be a grain. But let's doing say, so something physical community. as means of yeah. atonement. That the general idea of a cathartic act of a demonstration. I don't think anybody has a problem with. In the modern day world would have a problem with the idea of slaughtering an animal as that act. And what does that say about how people who lived at that time felt about their relationship to animals, their relationship to the natural world? Um, in many ways, they were much more in and of the natural world than we are. And so they were. They were seeing birth and death all the time. On the other hand, they saw the animals as theirs, not as a, a wild creature with a right to live on its own and live and die in, in its own way, or even a domesticated animal, which it usually was a domesticated animal, um, that was that was being offered up that they had helped to, to rear, to to care for, et cetera. Um, and, and our attitudes toward that have in some ways changed and in some ways have become more industrialized and distant. Um, we, have, we have to deal with that. What I'm wondering is um, the, how the community came to select the animal and how, I don't want to put this in, in a, I'm not talking about crassly, but who paid for it? Was it something where everyone, was it a collection that was taken up around the general community where everyone had to give the same amount? Was it like a proportionate, proportionate to what their, their assets, et cetera? None of which is described. Right, not, none of which is described 
here in the Torah, but it will be described in later places um, in rabbinic literature. Um, yeah. Um, so with that in mind, let's look, um, let's jump a 1500, 1600 years forward um, to the Mishnah Torah written by the Rambam, it's halachic code. Um, and this particular one is gonna be on repentance. It's not specifically related um, to the verses, but it's related to this idea of repentance that's going on. And so that's why um, you'll see I broke it up into two different parts. Um, I wanna focus on each part at, um, at its own time um, because I, they're related, but it's a lot of text to do all at once. So um, the next source, um, if a person transgresses any of the mitzvot of the Torah, whether a positive command or a negative command, whether willingly or inadvertently, when they repent and return from their sin, they must confess before God, blessed be God, as, as um, it's stated in uh, Numbers, if a man or woman commits any of the sins of man, they must confess the sin that they committed. This refers to a verbal confession. Uh, this confession is a positive command. How does one confess? They state, I implore you, God, I sinned, I transgressed, I committed iniquity before you by doing the following. Behold, I regret and am embarrassed for my deeds. I promise never again to repeat this act. I promise never to repeat this act again. These are the essential elements of the confessional prayer. Whoever confesses profusely and elaborates on these matters is worthy of praise. So we saw one model of teshuva of repentance vaguely in the verses from Vayikra. Now let's look at Rambam's model. What is What are the different steps of this? Prayer, in, prayer instead of sacrifice. We're, Rambam's at a point where we no longer have sacrifice as an option, so that's part of it. Under Rambam you say, yes, I acknowledge that I've done something wrong. You say, I'm very sorry that I did it, and I promise I won't do it again. That's very different than just doing an animal sacrifice. Yes, both have the recognition of the wrong, not necessarily though that, uh, and it may perhaps it says I feel bad about it, but not the sense of the, the element of tshuva, I won't do it again. Great. So how does that feel in today's world? Is it still relevant? Is it more relevant, less relevant than what we saw in Vayikra? It's necessary. Great. It, it's a very necessary thing to be able to do a proper apology. 100%. Other thoughts? Yeah. I think what's what's interesting is this section where it's like, you know, I committed inequity, um, iniquity before you by doing the following, right? So there's like a forensic aspect to it. So it's not just saying like, oh, this thing went wrong. It like doesn't really say in the first reading, like, how did it go wrong, right? You know what I mean? It's just something happened, right? The community leadership has aired, right? Um, but this is like, I'm going to describe exactly what happened. So you really understand, right, what the motivations were, right? It gets into the kind of the depth of what happened. So that, and that's how you change your behavior, right? Is you actually understand what inspired you. Great. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to this idea of not just having it become known, but the very specifics of what went wrong. Yeah. Well, expanding on the proper apology thing, <clears throat> um, example would be just saying, I'm sorry, just by itself is not enough. You have to say what you're sorry for, such as, so for example, say, I'm sorry I did X and I will not do that again. And I will 
learn from it kind of thing. There, and there's a lot of ways to tell whether an apology is real or fake, mostly by the wording. You can Google it so I don't take up everybody's time. Great. So with that in mind, let's move on to the next part because that's going to address a lot of what's being said. Uh, those who bring sin offerings or guilt offerings must also confess their sins when they bring their sacrifices for their inadvertent or willful transgressions. Their sacrifices will not atone for their sins until they repent and make a verbal confession, as stated in Vaikra. Um, different verses, um, although similar section. Um, he shall confess the sins he the sin he has committed upon it. So, what is this text adding, clarifying in relation to the previous text? It, I, if I remember correctly, I cut out like I either cut out a little bit. No. This is literally right afterwards, and then it goes on and describes a little more. What What is this adding or clarifying? Or is it adding or clarifying anything from before? Even with the sacrifice, you still have to admit it. You can't just show up with your sacrifice and pretend like nothing bad happened, even though you're there for a sacrifice. Exactly. It, it wouldn't be, you can't accept responsibility and then not own up to your mistake by saying this is what went wrong. You, you've, those two things are interconnected. Other thoughts? It, it, changing behavior requires more than just saying I won't do it again. Great. So with all that in mind, I want to move on to um, our last commentary, which is um, from Ramban, um, Nachmanides instead of Maimonides, um, about 100 year, years later in a similar milieu, but um, certainly would have had what we just read um, in his knowledge bank. So he is then commenting on um, the verses that we read. Um, when the sin wherein they have sinned is known, then the assembly shall offer a young bullock. That's our Torah verse. It is self-understood that they cannot offer a sin offering until they know what they have sinned. So why does scripture mention it? But it is a linguistic expression of the Hebrew language to say, and when it becomes known to them that they have sinned, they should bring their offering. Therefore, God did not mention it in the case of the anointed priest earlier on in this chapter, uh, because there was no need for it. It is possible that the reason why the verse says, when their sin wherein they have sinned is known, is not merely as a linguistic expression, but to indicate that the assembly is not obliged to bring, bring the sin offering unless they have definite knowledge of their sin, but not if it is merely a doubt, as in the case of the suspensive guilt offering. Our rabbis have interpreted that the verse says, the sin is known, to teach that if the court knew that they had given an indirect, incorrect decision on one of two kinds of forbidden food, such as fat and blood, declaring that one of them may be eaten, but they did not know which one of them uh, it was that may that was that they permitted and the people had eaten both i might think that the court is obligated to bring a sin offering as they are usually uh, as they usually are when they give an incorrect decision which the people followed scripture therefore says when the sin wherein they have sinned is known not when only the sinners are known this is not mentioned in the case of the sin offering of the anointed priest since um, god said there if the anointed priest shall sin so as to bring guilt on the people, thus declaring the law of the sin offering um, the anointed priest to be like that of the public. So 
that was a lot of text, um, actually not so much in Hebrew, but a lot that needed to be filled in to make it understandable in English. Um, so according to Ramban, what are these different steps of a sin offering? You need to know exactly what it was that you did wrong. What else did he point out? What, what is the difference between a suspensive guilt offering and an ordinary guilt offering? What's the difference? If I understand it correctly, it's essentially that you, that you know you did something wrong, but you're not exactly sure what it is. Does that sound right, Rabbi Klickfeld? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So, so if, if I understand it correctly, it's, um, you're saying it's whether or not I may have done something wrong or I think my understanding is that it's either or. It, it could be that I know I did something wrong, but I don't know what I did wrong or I may or may not have done something wrong. They're not equivalent, but the process of um, the process of it's not quite repentance, but the sin offering that is offered in both cases is the same. They're not exactly the same case. Yeah, there there is absolutely no mention of intent in this. It doesn't matter whether or not you did it willingly or unwillingly. It's the same process of, in this case, what we're talking about is repentance. So it's the same process of um, a form of repentance. So, yeah. So with that in mind, we have a sin offering that needs to be offered. Um, We know that we need to know exactly what we did wrong. We need to know who the people were that did it wrong. all that in mind, that's generally what we're looking at from what Ramban says. I want to bring it into today's world. We're not going to offer up sins, but how could this work as a paradigm for, or how does it work um, without us realizing it um, as a paradigm for a modern apology? And we've kind of touched on this already, but um, I just want to be very specific on that. You say, I. You apologize and say, look, I did something really wrong towards you, and here's what it was. I'm very sorry that I did it for any harm that I caused you, and please forgive me. I promise you I won't do this again. I'm going to hire you. You did a good job. (laughs) Great. Yeah. Is it okay? Is it me? I would say that one of the main things we do is, is money. See, there's compensation you have to pay either collectively as a group or collectively by yourself to, to, to amend for the, for, the, for the problem or the sin. There, there's some form of recompense that's also needed. Right. Great. Rabbi Klickfeld? Great. So to, can I just restate for, and then, um, so what Rabbi Klickfeld was saying is, in the modern era, we tend to give um, collective responsibility for an action a lot easier than what this text is saying. This text is saying there needs to be absolute certainty that the entire community was involved in it before there's any sort of um, collective recompense for it. I think it was a translation versed, uh, based on one specific commentator's reading of it, which is why you can this is certainly the way that I think it was Ibn Ezra might have read it, but it's not the way that a lot of the other commentators understand it. So that could be why we're dealing with a slightly different translation that can then obviously lead to a different understanding. 
Um, one last thought, Joey, and okay. then, um, yeah. Uh, expanding on Rabbi Kligfeld about the communal sin versus individual sin, <coughs> excuse me, reminds me of, uh, of some of us probably were in elementary school when, when, they, when they believed in punishing the whole class for something one student did wrong. It's kind of like that, which in my view only exacerbates the problem, doesn't fix it. Mm -hmm. Great. So to wrap things up, um, I, I wanted to bring this, these texts in because we're reaching, we're preparing for Pesach. There's going to be a lot of talk about getting rid of our spiritual chametz, things like that. And um, especially with Rosh Chodesh Nisan coming, um, the be a beginning of a year in a certain sense. Um, there's some time to not just um, for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but now too, I think is a good time to reflect on what we've done since then, places where maybe we haven't apologized and what it might look like for us to do it, a reminder of what a good apology looks like. Um, one of my um, literary teachers in that I've read his book um, is uh, Randy Pausch. He's a, who's a PhD at um, Carnegie Mellon. And one of the things he talks about in his book, which is all these little life lessons, um, it was a book that he wrote um, really as he was, um, as he was dying of pancreatic cancer to leave behind these life lessons for his kids. And one of the things he talks about is that a good apology is, I'm sorry, it was my fault, how can I make it up to you? And that's the model that we're seeing way back from our ancestors' time. This model of knowing what you've done wrong, owning up to it, and trying to make amends for it. What's really interesting that I really, and one of the reasons why I asked about um, sin offerings and how they sit, one of the things that I really appreciate about them is there was this knowledge back in the time of the temple that if the sin offering went up and everything went according to plan, you knew without a doubt that God had accepted your apology. And that's not a world that we live in today. We can apologize and that's not necessarily accepted. So with that in mind, there is a little, um, there's something that I really appreciate about having a ritual in which we know that at least if we do all the steps that we need to do to make amends for what we've done wrong, we don't have to rely on the other not accepting that. Um, that's something that really um, hits home for me. So with that in mind, I wish us all that we're able to, um, to reflect on what has happened since Rosh Hashanah, since Yom Kippur, and take a second to, um, to take a mental note of who are the people that maybe, what are the things that maybe we haven't yet owned up to in a specific enough way? And um, how can we set ourselves up for a world post-Pesach where, um, <coughs> where all of the offerings that would have been um, are just Omer offerings and not um, Chatat offerings, not Sin offerings. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to TBA.com. LA.org.